Well, good morning. I hope all of you had a very good Thanksgiving um, holiday. I know our family did. It was great until, well, until yesterday, until Friday when we came home and half my family all of a sudden got sick. And so that's why none of them are here this morning. And I know there's others that are out because of illness, but it's good to see those of you who are here this morning. Um, And it's a good time of the year. As I've said every year this time of the year, I always say this is my favorite time of the year. Christmas is my favorite time of the year. Um, Not simply because of the sentimentality and all the fun stuff that goes along with the Christmas season, but because it is the season where we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus. We celebrate, in reality, the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead. So um, it's an exciting time of Advent. Advent at Harbin's involves our traditional Advent wreath that Todd and Carol lit for us this morning. And usually a sermon series focused on the birth of Christ. And this year, I have chosen to to focus each of our four, each of our sermons leading up to Christmas on the four aspects of Advent. Okay, so we're breaking away from our normal sermon series, which is the Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ series, where we're walking verse by verse through the life of Christ, and we're going to focus on Advent. And as you know, the first candle, which was lit today, signifies hope. The second candle, which will be lit next week, is the candle of peace. The third candle, the pink one there, is the candle of love. The fourth candle, which will light on the last Sunday before Christmas, represents joy. And finally, the white candle in the middle, which is the centermost point of the wreath, is the Christ candle, and we'll light that on our Christmas Eve service. Christ is absolutely the center of all because not only is he the reason for all these other things, hope, peace, love, and joy, he himself is all of these other things. He is the incarnation of hope, peace, Love and joy. And that's why our sermon series is entitled, Jesus Is. As we go through this, this uh, Advent season, Jesus Is. And so today we will focus on the fact that Jesus is hope. Jesus is hope. Now the text I've chosen for us to look at today on this theme of hope. And by the way, there's many, many texts that could be chosen from in regards to Christ being our hope. But the text I've chosen for today is Romans 15, verses 8 through 13. So turn there, if you would, Romans chapter 15. Verses 8 through 13. As you turn there, I'll give you a little bit of context. This passage of Scripture comes, of course, at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. And it's essentially the final synopsis or conclusion of the letter. In many ways, this text we are reading today summarizes the theology of Romans. And the very last verse of today's passage is a benediction. And that benediction serves as an exclamation point on the whole epistle. Now, Paul goes on after this passage to to say a few more things, particularly about his work among the Gentiles and about his plans to come and visit the the Christians in Rome. And he also has some personal greetings for the believers in Rome. But for now, let us see that this this portion of the epistle really is the summary, the conclusion of the teaching portion of Romans. So Romans 15, verses 8 through 13. So please, if you would stand as we get ready to read this passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 15. Verse 8, and we'll read down through verse 13. The reason we stand at Harbin's when we read God's word before we preach is that we believe this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Romans 15, verse 8. The word of the Lord says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and... In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. 
Again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do want to be a people who abound in hope. So God, I pray that we will hear your word this morning, that we will respond to your word appropriately, but we are unable to do it without your help. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to open up deaf ears, to enable my mouth to speak. And Lord, we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I don't mean to appeal to, and I'm not trying to appeal to materialism here this morning, but I just have a question. Kids, what, what might you be expecting to get this Christmas? Is there anything that you're hoping, wishing to get this Christmas? I see one child, Vera. A Lego set, okay? Um, anything else that you're, you're hoping to get? Adults. Okay, anything, anything you're hoping to get? Socks? Someone says socks. All right, socks. Good. You're kind of like me. Set the bar low and you won't be disappointed, right? Socks. I think that one's on my list too. Anything else? Okay, one in the back. What was that? An air cooker. All right. Gabe, write that down. Air cooker. All right. At Christmas season... Okay, and, and I don't think it's wrong because the celebration of Christmas does involve the giving of gifts. Of course, it shouldn't be the, the center most point of, of what we do at Christmas. Kids, obviously Christmas isn't all about what you get. And, and we know that it's about the birth of Christ. But, but certainly when you come to Christmas season as a kid, you're always, you have great expectations. Things you're hoping for. And I probably told you the story before of me as a child. I think I was in first grade and I was hoping for, just really hoping for this Nerf basketball set. And it was this Nerf basketball set that, that, that uh, was being advertised all over the place. And I had told my parents I wanted it. And I was so intent on making sure I got that that the year that I remember um, searching the house for that Nerf uh, basketball set. And I peeked underneath the guest bedroom uh, bed and I saw the Nerf set. Actually, I started peeking under it. My mom said, Steve, do not look under there. Now, the parents, you cannot say that to your children. But she said that to me. But lo and behold, I did. I kept going back. I finally peeked under there and saw what it was and was so excited. But my mom caught me looking at it. And guess what? She didn't give it to me that Christmas. All right? She told me if I kept trying to peek under there that I, that I wouldn't get what, what I was looking for. And sure enough, now she swears that she gave it to me that Christmas. I did get it like a year later. And she, she, she disputes the, 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 the factualness of that story. But I remember it that way. I did not get the Nerf adjustable basketball rim that year. It was a year later. But we hope for things right at Christmas season. But hope in the Bible is not what many think of when you hear the word hope in that context that I just mentioned it. We think about the word hope in our world today. People think of hope as if, as if it's something like wishing. So like a child wishing to get a toy that he's always wanted for Christmas. We think that's what hope is. But, but biblical hope is not wishing. 
nor is it merely um, optimism, like, like me hoping the Cowboys will win the Super Bowl, okay? No, hope in the Bible is solid, sure confidence in God and in his promises. It's a solid and sure confidence in God and in his promises. The Holman Bible Dictionary defines biblical hope as follows. Hope is the confidence that what God has done for us in the past guarantees our participation in what God will do in the future. So friends, hope, biblical hope, stands in stark contrast to worldly hope, which is based on nothing more than vain wishes and fleshly desires. Christian hope stands on what God has already done and on what he promises to do. That hope is all over the text that we're looking at today. In particular, we see it in verse 13. And as I said earlier, verse 13 is a great benediction that Paul pronounces to the Roman Christians. A benediction is a prayer prayed to God, but over God's people. It's asking God for a blessing as that blessing is pronounced over his people. The scriptures are full of benedictions. Each one of Paul's letters has a benediction in it. The benediction that closes out the teaching of Romans is this, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So Paul's desire and prayer to God for the Roman church and for us as he concludes this glorious epistle is that we may abound in hope. Abound, that Greek word, is, it really could be translated superabound. It means to exceed or overflow with something. And in this case, it's hope. And notice the cyclical nature of hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Solid and certain hope in the God of hope produces joy and peace in believing, which is faith, that results in spirit-empowered and rock-solid hope to carry us on, to cause us to persevere. And so that's the difference here. So to try to put it in, a, in kind of a, an illustration that maybe kids could understand... So let's say your parents come up to you and say, hey, guess what, so-and-so? Your grandparents are coming for Christmas. It's a done deal. They've already bought the tickets. They're coming. Now that child is going to be excited. And they believe what their parents have told them because their parents are trustworthy. So they have confidence in what their parents have said. They have confidence in what their grandparents have done in the past. And so they believe what they've heard. And now, as they wait for that day that's coming, that they're sure is going to come, what do they have? They have great anticipation. They have joy. They have peace. They're excited that the grandparents are coming. And then the day comes, the grandparents show up, and they're there, and the hope has been fulfilled. And that's a better picture of biblical hope, except that, that even with that example, well, parent, grandparents can miss a plane, or someone can get sick, or something can go wrong. But God's assurance that he gives us can't be broken. God, didn't, God never disappoints his people. Paul wants the church in Rome to carry on. He wants them to persevere. The context tells us early in Romans 15 and he, that he's been calling them to follow the example of Christ by serving and pleasing one another above themselves. 
So you know, you know how Paul structures his epistles. There's the doctrine portion, then there's the application portion. So beginning in Romans 12, all the way through 15, there's this application. And, and Paul is calling on the church to love one another and to persevere. So in verse 8 here, he starts off with the word for, which could also be translated as since or because. So he's telling them he wants them to serve one another because of what he's about to say. I want you to persevere in the difficult Christian life because of everything I'm about to tell you. So today my desire is that we too, like the Roman church, may abound in hope as we persevere in our Christian walk. Now we don't have time to do an in-depth exegesis of this passage. That would take more than one sermon for sure. And someday, Lord willing, we'll preach through Romans verse by verse. We'll dig into this text more deeply. I don't know when that will be. Right now, I have no idea when we'll get through the Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ series, but we may take a break from that and actually jump into Romans at some point. But that in and of itself should take probably three or four years just to get through Romans. So who knows? Lord willing, we will preach through Romans eventually at Harbin's. It's one of my great hopes and joys for us to do that. But for today, let us draw out four reasons, four reasons why we as Christians can abound in hope during the Christmas season. Four reasons Christians may abound in hope This Christmas season, first of all, because Christ became a servant. Christ became a servant. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise. Now the very first words of this passage are simply astounding. For I tell you that Christ became Christ Jesus... The second person of the Godhead, God of God, eternal, immutable, became. He became a man. That's what we are celebrating at Christmas time. We are celebrating the incarnation. Really, Christmas could simply be called Incarnation Day. Advent simply means arrival. We are celebrating the glorious and mysterious truth that the one who created all things, who called all things into being, arrived. He entered into what he created and dwelt amongst us, as John 1.14 tells us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Earlier we sang a hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing by Charles Wesley. But there's one verse that was left out of that version. The verse says this. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Jesus became. He came to be with his people. He came to this earth as a human child. He didn't cease to be God, but he started to be human. 100% human, yet never ceasing to be 100% divine. That is a glorious truth, and we really don't even grasp the mind-blowing implications of the incarnation. What a great and deep mystery it is. Yet it is a mystery we must believe, for the Scriptures teach us that Jesus had to become flesh. He had to become man. He had to become a servant in order to save man. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Friends, you have to believe in the incarnation if you're a Christian. There are those out there today who wear the label of Christian who say, well, this whole Christmas thing, Jesus wasn't truly 100% divine. Or there's those who are are hearkening back to the Gnostic 
heresies and say, well, Jesus didn't have an, an actual human body like the rest of us. Those are heresies. Those are not true. We have to believe in what the scriptures teach us. Jesus had to be made like his brothers. He had to become a servant or else we're not saved. If we don't have the incarnation, we don't have salvation. And we read in today's text that he became a servant, specifically here a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but also a servant for all his other people as we see from the fuller context and from other scriptures like Philippians 2. He came to serve, literally to be a slave, so that he might become beneath all men in order to save all men. Our hope can abound because the Son of Man... Because Jesus, the, the Son of God, became man. A man who would come to serve, to be a slave, to lay down his life for his people. Mark ten forty five. Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see that incarnational servanthood on fullest display in the passage I mentioned a minute ago, Philippians 2. Beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, that's a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We can abound in hope because he came to die the death that we deserved on a cruel cross. But more than that, he was, a, he was raised and he is alive today, exalted by the Father. For that passage in Philippians continues in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, the, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let our hope abound for Christ. Let our hope abound in Christ. For he came to serve and serve he did until he died on that cross. And thereby he won the victory for all who are in him as he rose again. And so we look to him with a certain hope, a confident hope, a rock solid assurance. We look to him in hope because he came with a purpose. He came to seek and to save lost sinners. That's the next reason I want us to abound in hope today. Christians may abound in hope this Christmas season, not only because Christ became a servant, but also because Christ came to seek. He came to seek sinners. He came to seek out his sheep, his people, his brothers. And he first came to the lost sheep of Israel, to the Jews, Romans 15, 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there is a whole lot we could talk about here. Not enough time this morning to tackle it all. But let's quickly try to summarize what Paul is saying here. First, he is reminding us that the gospel came first to the Jews. The gospel came first to the Jews. That is the ethnic nation of Israel, the physical seed of Abraham. That's what Paul means when he says that Jesus became a servant to the circumcised. So he comes to the Jew first. Jesus even said in Matthew 15, 24, and you remember this passage where a Canaanite woman wanted to come and was asking Jesus for healing uh, for her daughter. And Jesus said to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she, con she continued in her faith and he, he blesses her and, and, and follows through and, and heals, gives her the healing she was seeking. 
But Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Meaning his earthly ministry, although Jesus knew and planned for it to eventually go global, was first aimed at the physical, natural seed of Abraham. So we see in Romans 1.16, Paul's famous words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The Jew first, meaning it came to them first temporally, in time and space, but secondly, covenantally. Likewise, Peter and John, in their sermon they gave after healing the lame man outside the temple in Acts chapter 3, they said this in verse 25, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, We're speaking of Jesus here. Sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So the gospel comes to the Jew first. Why? Well, because of the very thing Peter said in that passage we just read. Namely, because the promises of God were given covenantally to the physical seed of Abraham. And thus the physical seed of Abraham would be the means by which those promises would come about. Now, by referring here to the promises given to the patriarchs, and again, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Paul is speaking about the Abrahamic covenant, which was one covenant, but dichotomous in its nature, in that it was both unconditional, for God says in Genesis 17 that he would make Abraham a great nation, he would bring Abraham's seed into the land as an everlasting possession, but it was also conditional. Two sides of one covenant. In that same Genesis 17 passage, God gives conditions. He commands Abraham and his seed, saying to them, You shall keep my covenant. You shall be circumcised. And then he goes on to tell them if they don't, they will be cut off. So what is it? How can one covenant be both conditional and unconditional? Well, only in Christ can that covenant be conditional and unconditional. The promises were made to the physical, natural seed of Abraham. And that physical seed of Abraham was called upon to keep the covenant perfectly. And by the way, the circumcision implied keeping all of God's moral law as the Mosaic covenant would later make clear. But no offspring of Abraham was ever able to keep the covenant save one. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the only perfect covenant keeper For Genesis 17 was pointing not to Abraham's physical seed, plural, but to his physical seed, singular, who is Jesus. That's exactly what Paul teaches us in Galatians 3.16. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, this is Paul speaking, not me. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ, end quote. Paul says that the promises of Genesis 17 were given to the offspring singular, Jesus, the one who was to come. So Jesus comes and he's the only Jew who obeyed the covenant perfectly. He is himself God, so he keeps the covenant on behalf of his people. He keeps God's in and the Jews in. He's 100% man and 100% God. He is the covenant keeper. The promises spoken of in this text are kept. They are kept in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. The unconditional and the conditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant are kept in and by Christ alone. So Jesus is the only perfect offspring, the only perfect Jew. Jesus is the obedient son. He is the true and final Israel, the singular seed predicted from of old. And now the Jews first are called to believe 
believe in their Messiah, believe in their kinsmen in the flesh, and thereby have life. Therefore, only those who are united to Christ, the perfect Jew, by faith, can then become the spiritual seed of Abraham and thus be true Jews, Romans 9, 6 says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. You see, people were questioning, has God failed to keep his promises? Paul says, by no means, in Romans 9, 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, natural, physical, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And Galatians 3, 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So God did keep all of his promises given to the patriarchs, but he did it in Christ. So this is how God shows his truthfulness, as today's text puts it. This is how he shows his faithfulness. He is the law giver, and he is the law keeper. He is the promise maker, and he is the promise keeper. He is the covenant giver, and he is the covenant keeper. Or as Paul puts it, he is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith. That is amazing truth. That is ground-shaking truth. It gives all the glory to one person, God. No glory for us to grab and no glory for the Jews to grab. It all belongs to God. And thus, a way of faith has now been opened up for all the nations, not just the Jews. Romans 15, 8 says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to, first of all, confirm the promises, which is what we just talked about. But secondly, verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. How does Christ coming to show God's truthfulness, his faithfulness, cause Gentiles to glorify God? Well, quite simply because Jesus, the perfect seed of Abraham, obeyed the law perfectly and thereby abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, which is what Ephesians 2.15 teaches us. So now all may come to God by putting their hope in Christ alone. The way has now been opened up. The dividing wall has been broken down. Now all men from all nations may come to God by means of the only man who kept God's law perfectly. And once we are united to Christ by faith, that obedience to the law that he followed through on, that obedience to the law is credited to us. And that payment for breaking the law is paid for us. And then we become, because we are united by faith to Jesus, the offspring singular of Abraham, we too become children of Abraham. Don't take my word for it, Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3.29. So, as today's text says, and this should give us great hope, Gentiles can glorify God for his mercy. And more than that, It was the general rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people that actually propelled the gospel into Gentile lands. Acts 28, 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And Romans 11 teaches us that through their trespass, the Jewish trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles. But what about the ethnic descendants of the patriarchs, the Jewish people? Does the fact that the promises can only be received by virtue of being united to the Messiah through faith nullify God's special place for the ethnic nation that he chose? Not at all. 
Because if we truly understand Romans 9 through 11, there should be no question about the fact that God still has a plan for the ethnically Jewish people, the natural children of Abraham, even in unbelief, are still in some way chosen because of the patriarchs. Romans eleven twenty eight clearly teaches us, as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but in regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of the patriarchs. That's a difficult verse, and we cannot wrestle with it this morning. I mean, how can someone be an enemy and yet still be beloved? But we must at least see this this morning, that God used the Jewish nation to bring in the promised Messiah into the world, the Savior of all men. The Jews largely rejected their Messiah, the true offspring of Abraham, and God used that rejection to thrust the gospel into Gentile lands. But the design of all of this on God's part was to make the Jews jealous at their loss so that one day before Christ returns, there'll be a great ingathering of ethnic Jews who turn to the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and thus by faith become true Jews, Jews under a new covenant, Jews united by faith to the covenant keeper Jesus. So let us simply see this morning that Jesus came to seek and to save lost sinners, first the Jews, but also Gentiles. And that should cause us all to abound in hope that we will all one day be together worshiping around the throne of grace. Jesus says in Luke 19.10 that he came to seek and to save the lost. Those words are a fulfillment of Ezekiel 34.11. It says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. God himself, Jesus the God-man, came to seek and to save lost sinners. Sinners from all corners of the globe, Jew and Gentile, which is what Jesus himself had said in John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. This ingathering of sheep from all nations is what the scriptures have been speaking about all along. So the next thing I want us to see this morning is that Christians may abound in hope this Christmas season because, number one, Christ came to be a servant. Second, Christ came to seek. But thirdly, Christ upheld the scriptures. What Paul now does in verses 8 through 9, after he makes his point in verses 8 in the beginning of verse 9, he goes and rattles off now at the second half of verse 9, Four different Old Testament scriptures. It says this in the second half of verse 9. As it is written. So now when you hear that, you know he's talking about the scriptures. As it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That is a quotation from 2 Samuel 22.50 and Psalm 18.49. Verse 10. And again it is said, rejoice O Gentiles with his people. That is a quotation from Deuteronomy 32.43. Verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. That is a citation from Psalm 117.1. And finally, we have Isaiah 11, verse 10, which we read earlier in the service, quoted by Paul here. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And in him will the Gentiles hope. In him will the Gentiles hope. And now, after he brings that text out and talks about our hope, And the root of Jesse, he launches into that great benediction. But just think of that for a second, the root of Jesse. If you remember as Peter read that passage earlier today, it begins by talking about God was going to send a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So at the beginning of the passage, Jesus is the shoot who comes from the stump of Jesse. At the end of the passage, he is the root of Jesse. So what is he? Is he the shoot or the root? He's both. He is the source of Jesse. And he is the shoot off of the stump of Jesse. Only a God-man can fulfill Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. 
So as you, you asked me in our hermeneutics class, well, did they see that the Messiah was supposed to be God? Right there they should have. How can a mere man be the root of Jesse? Only Jesus is the root, the one that produces the line of Jesse and then comes out of the line of Jesse because of the incarnation. So the Old Testament does preach about the divinity of the Messiah. Yes, the scriptures have been preaching of the coming of Jesus and the inclusion even of the Gentile people in the people of God. The prophets have foretold this. That's why the hope candle was lit today. It's also called the prophet's candle. Jesus, the hope of nations, was perfectly foretold by the scriptures. Over and over and over again in the gospels, especially in Matthew, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment and thus the confirmation of the absolute accuracy and faithfulness of God's word so we can have rock-solid hope because we have evidence that God has kept his word. The rock-solid hope that the Jews had for the promises of Abraham to be kept by God and the rock-solid hope that we Gentiles have to be saved were resting upon God's infallible word. We have hope because God's word never fails. They were resting in the fact that it, it was written. I love how Paul starts that. It is written. And so too we must rest on the fact that it is written. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is infallible. It accomplishes what he wants it to accomplish. 1 Peter 1, 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And Jesus himself in Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God cannot lie, friends. Therefore, his word is totally and absolutely trustworthy. Hebrews 6, 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, and that's all of us, if you have faith in Jesus, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We may abound in hope because our faith is resting on the firm footing of God's infallible word. He keeps his promises to his people. He makes it happen. He does it. He speaks. He creates. He makes hearts new. He is our all in all. So we have hope for he is who he says he is. And he does what he says he will do. And he sent his son Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the final word of God who became a servant to seek and to save all of his people just as he promised he would do. And more than that, he has given us a glorious gift, which brings me to my last point this morning. Christians may abound in hope this Christmas season because Christ gave the Spirit. Verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. May the God of hope. A God of hope because he's a God who sent his son. He's a God who saves his people. And he's a God who keeps his word. May that God fill us all with joy and peace. And how are we filled with joy and peace? We are filled with those things as fruit of the Holy Spirit that resides in us. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That, that fruit comes by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. 
Joy and peace always go together in Scripture. They're like twin sisters. They come together. Peace is joy at rest. And joy is peace dancing. Peace is not like the rest that the world offers, but a supernatural, spirit-wrought, leaning on God during times of trouble. And joy does not produce the dancing that this world desires, but a supernatural shimmering of the soul that cannot be snuffed out. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's the fruit that comes from our faith. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Not a blind leap of faith that has no foundation, but a supernatural step of faith that stands on the firm hope of God, on the God of hope. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. If joy and peace are twin sisters, well then faith and hope are like twin brothers. Faith stands on the rock-solid hope in God and hope in his word. And the amazing thing is this. This hope that produces peace and joy through faith then ends up producing more faith. Which then ends up producing more joy and peace, which ends up producing more hope. May the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It's a cyclical work. We never stop hoping And the more we hope, the more we believe, and thus we have faith and joy and peace. And the more we have faith and peace and joy through faith, the more we hope and the more that hope increases and overflows. It's abounding in hope. It's just flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing. So to conclude this morning, what does superabounding hope look like? What does it look forward to? What is it hoping for? Well, first of all, it's sure hope that we will see the glory of God. If you're a Christian here, you know, I will see the glory of God one day, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice that we are going to see God. So that's one Part of what our hope is looking forward to. Secondly, it's a sure hope that that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we hope for a, a new heavens and a new earth. And it's also a sure hope that we will be given new incorruptible bodies. Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Oh, yes. Seeing God face to face in a new heavens and a new earth with new incorruptible sinless bodies. That is the hope that we can hold fast to. It is sure hope. And we hold on to it by holding on to Christ in faith. So Christian, this morning, I want you to abound in hope this Christmas season by remembering what God has said and what God has done. Knowing that he is the one who sent his son as a servant. A servant who came to seek and to save lost sinners from all nations. And that he is a God who keeps all of his word. 
And he is a God who has put his spirit in us as a seal, as a down payment, as a first fruit guaranteeing what is yet to come. So Christian, rejoice and be at peace for we have a sure and great hope. 1 Peter 1.13 tells us that we are to be preparing our minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I want you to persevere this morning, Christian, and abound in hope. And to the one who's not a Christian in this room, I beg you to come. Come and find the only true hope this season. There's no true hope in anyone other than Christ. As you turn on your TV, you see the hopelessness of disease and war and racial conflict and political corruption and famine and poverty. But know this, that there is only one hope for mankind, one hope for all the nations, and that hope is Jesus. So come, turn from the sin of putting your hope in other things and in yourself and turn to the one who is your only hope. Turn to him for forgiveness of your sins and for the hope of eternal life. Come to Christ because Jesus is hope. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness to us. Who in here deserves for you to show steadfast love to them? Yet you are a God of steadfast love. But at the same time, you are a God who who doesn't just pass over iniquity and forget about it. It must be punished. Sin must be punished. For you are a just God. So Father, we thank you. Those of us in here who, are, who have been united to Christ, the only obedient Son, those of us who have been united to Christ, have become co-heirs with him, heirs to the promises. We praise you, God, that you did that. We did nothing to deserve that. It was all grace. So, Father, let us, in that alone, let that cause our hope to abound and overflow. We have certain hope for the future because we have been raised from the dead. We've been born again. So, God, we praise you and thank you for that. Lord, may that be in the foremost of our minds this week as we go about all that we do. Don't let us get distracted by the materialism of Christmas. There's no hope in the, in the gift you hope to get at the Christmas tree? Oh, Father, I pray that you'd help us to put all of our hope in Christ alone this Christmas season. Let us put our hope in the one who came to be the servant, a servant who would die a humiliating death on behalf of his people. Let us put our hope in the one who came to seek, to seek and to save sinners from all nations who sought us out We love because he first loved us. Let us put our hope in in the one who fulfilled all of your word and showed us that your promises, your scriptures, can never be broken. Let us put our hope in, in the one who has given us his spirit. His spirit which will guarantee, guarantee that we will make it to the end. We will persevere. The Spirit who daily is working in our hearts to conform us to the image of the Son. So, Father, we praise you and thank you for that. That should cause us to abound in hope. Lord, may you be glorified in all that we do as we conclude this service. If there be anyone in this room that needs to talk to me about the gospel and what all this means, Lord, I pray that they would take the time to do that. 
But now as we get ready to close and we sing this song, Lord, I pray that you be glorified and that we would truly mean the words we sing because you are our all in all. All we have is Christ. And if we have Christ, we have everything. We have everything. What a glorious hope that is. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.